It's time to get inside the Giants huddle. Let's go, back to your huddle. On Giants.com. Tempo, tempo, tempo. And the Giants mobile app. Go, 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 part go. Part of the Giants podcast network. Yeah. Welcome to the newest Giants huddle podcast. John Schmoke with you, today's guest. From Pro Football Focus, Steve Palazzolo. But first, I want to remind everybody you can find the Giants huddle podcast on the Giants mobile app at Giants.com slash podcast and your favorite podcast platforms. I will warn everybody ahead of time, if you hear thunder and lightning, that's me. If you hear cicadas, that's Steve <laughs> as we battle Mother Nature here um, throughout the episode. So, Steve, it's good to talk to you. It's been a while, man. How is everything in the dark mountain layer of pro football focus? It's, it's good. Yeah, it's good, to, it's good to chat some football, too. But um, it's, it's, it, I enjoy the offseason. I enjoy team building season and discussing all this stuff. And, you know, then you just get geared up and ready, ready for more football. But I always enjoy this time of year previewing and and getting ready for all the fun yeah we have about a month and a half to get any vacation that we have left out of the way because lord knows we're not taking it between august and december so let's talk some football here steve all right before we get into details let's just start very very basically how does pff and you view the giants from a twenty thousand foot view as a franchise heading into 2021 I think I think the word pivotal comes to mind, you know, for for Daniel Jones, for for the entire team building effort. I, I think I think they've done a lot of good things. You know, the the secondary's looking really good. You know, the the defense. I kept describing them as feisty last year. You know, they just they'd have some games where they were, you know, holding the Seahawks down and all, yeah. So they I think the defense was moving in the right area, uh, and I think the fact that they've They've attacked wide receiver and tight end. I think the way you're supposed to attack it, you know, I think that's how you win in today's NFL. You build a basketball team of, of pass catchers. And, you know, I'm sure we'll talk far more details behind that, but I think that is, is the key here. You know, you, the, the NFL is one on the perimeter with receivers and with corners and with safeties. And, and it's counterintuitive to a lot of, uh, you know, I think what people think around the NFL, but you well, we'll talk offensive line as well. There's that big question mark on the line. You can't be bad on the offensive line. You, can't, you don't want to be bad on the defensive line. So um, I think there's a lot of pieces moving in the right direction, and then it all comes down to Daniel Jones, the pivotal year three, and um, can he take that next step going forward? Yeah, and I think Daniel Jones is a great place to start, right? Because once you marry your franchise to a quarterback, he's going to have a bigger impact on your franchise than any single player, even position group on your roster. And I know a lot of Giant fans – you know, that watch casually think, boy, Daniel Jones took a step back in year two, only, you know, 12 touchdowns. But I looked at all the tape. You guys have your metrics too. If you look at a lot of the underlying numbers here, take touchdown production out of it, which I know is important. He actually made a lot of improvements in his second year. And a lot of your metrics show that too, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just hilarious. What a difference uh, a year makes. Not, we, we didn't want to, temper expectations a year ago at this time because Giants fans were excited about what Daniel Jones did in year one. Four, it was a three games with four plus touchdowns, no picks. He had one, you know, the five, five touchdown game in there. So there were some, some big games. And then last year, the stats weren't as good. And our PFF grades actually said last year he was better than his rookie season, which sounds crazy. But I think it, it highlights the importance of supporting cast. It highlights the importance of uh, receivers, playmakers, offensive line. He was under pressure more than any other quarterback last year. And, and that's a factor. He had the same number of big time throws by our numbers, actually a higher percentage in 2020 versus 2019. 
touchdown production does tend to fluctuate. It's not always a quarterback-driven stat. So my high-level view of Daniel Jones is actually he hasn't changed much from what we've seen uh, coming out. I, I compared him a little bit to Nick Foles when he came out, and, and that was in, in both a good and a bad way. I thought Nick Foles, he went on that Super Bowl run when you had that beautiful offensive line and playmakers and play calling, and it all came together. And Nick Foles is just aggressive, and he's going to throw the ball when he's under pressure, and he's going to take a hit and make plays that uh, that awe you, and then plays where you're just scratching your head. And I think Daniel Jones still has elements of all of that, so it all comes down to that supporting cast. Like 80% of NFL quarterbacks are really a product of what's around them. So I wouldn't be – I wasn't – point is, I wasn't overly encouraged by Jones after his rookie season. I'm not overly discouraged by his second season. I think he's the same guy. And if the offensive line can just, you know, hold tight just a little bit more, I think he's in his best situation from a playmaker standpoint. All right, two areas of the game I want to lock in on. One is, and this is one of my favorite stats that you guys do, is turnover-worthy plays. Because a quarterback can have eight dropped interceptions in a year, and the stats don't show it. A quarterback can have three passes deflected for an interception. The stats don't show drop passes that go right to defenders. And on the other hand, you can have years where it fluctuates. But your turnover-worthy play stats, you credit quarterbacks for sack fumbles. That's their fault, ones that aren't. I think it's a great stat. And it wasn't quite in half. But that number for Jones did drop pretty significantly in his second year, according to your metrics. Yeah, it did. And the, you know, the interception totals don't show it. Uh, in, in year one, a big chunk of them were fumbles. I, I forget, was it 16, 17 total fumbles that he had that year? And the way we do it is we, we, we say, look, sometimes you're just – they're unavoidable, right? You got left tackle gets whooped and you get strip sacked in your throwing motion. And it's a fumble, but it's not your fault. But Daniel Jones had about 10 or 11 that were – definitely his fault in year one and you know it, whether your left guard recovers it or not it's still a bad play it's still a bad fumble so um that was a big part of his grade not being all that great as a rookie so he had 32 total turnover worthy plays that includes misreading linebackers throw, you know throwing the ball to a linebacker throw under throwing it in a corner having a shot in an interception whether they pick it off or not it's a bad throw and that was what uh, jones had a bunch of those as a rookie but a lot of them were holding the ball too long and just poor ball security in the pocket. But yeah, he almost cut him in half last year. But again, the interception totals were about the same, right? I mean, it was it, you're in that same range, and um, it doesn't always show up on the stat sheet. But yeah, turnover-worthy plays have proven to be a, a more consistent number than, say, interception rate and um, you know other numbers that are used. So um, that, I would say, is a good sign for Jones that he did, you know, overall, on a play-by-play basis, took, a, took better care of the ball last season. The other thing to me, Steve, that was encouraging was his deep ball. Uh, as a rookie, I thought his deep ball was very inconsistent. Uh, early in the year, if I remember right, he was doing a lot of overthrows. Then late in the year in some bad weather, he did a lot of underthrows. But in his second year, I test, and according to your metrics too, he was one of the more accurate deep ball throwers in the league. Now, there weren't a ton of them. They didn't have a lot of attempts down the field, but the ones he made, he was good. How, talk about that a little bit, and also how consistent – is that year to year or is that something that will naturally fluctuate for most quarterbacks? No, that is, that's one that fluctuates a little bit, but if you want to evaluate what he did last year, highest passer rating in the league on 20 plus yard throws, but you're right. There was, it was only nine, uh, 9.6% of his attempts. That is near the bottom of the league. That's bottom 10 or so just from an attempt standpoint. So, you know, just from a football sense, they were opportunistic. They were few and far between. It's not as simple as just, you know, chuck it left and right, but, 
Um, he was efficient throwing the ball down the field. And that was, you know, if you look at his last year at Duke, before he got hurt, those first three games, he played Army, he played Northwestern, and he was incredible. Deep post, you know, touch, and he showed uh, a really good deep ball. So I think, I think the, the answer is somewhere in between, between his rookie – and he flashed some of it his rookie season as well, uh, but somewhere in between rookie season and last year. So, yeah, that, that stuff does tend to fluctuate a little bit, but it's also somewhat dependent on your receivers. Sure. So when you have a Darius Slayton with his uh, deep speed, when you have a Kenny Galladay with his contested catch ability, those guys will start to influence those deep ball stats as well. So if you've got the playmakers, a lot of times you could be productive throwing the ball down the field. And more willing to throw it when you have a guy like Galladay, he doesn't have to be wide open to it to make those plays. All right. So let, let, let's talk about the weapons. You guys had, I believe wide receiver group rankings up the other day. And I think the giants were right near the middle of the league. I think around 15, if I'm not mistaken, off memory, just talk about how they've added to that group. And I think what I like about it, Steve, they seem to have a guy that can play every role, right? Slayton's your deep speed guy. Galladay's your big contested catch guy. Shepard's your slot guy. You know, Tony's your yards after catch guy. Then you have Barkley out of the backfield. Ingram and Rudolph complement each other well. It seems they've really kind of checked every, you know, box in that wide receiver toolbox, you know, checklist that people have. I think I, I hope I ranked them a little bit higher than that. I mean, I, I like what they've done. There's still some questions. You don't know exactly what you're going to get from Tony in year one, but I, you described it exactly how I would. Again, I've, I've compared it to – I'm stealing this analogy. I can't even remember who it was from. And by the way, Steve, but, it was 11th. You guys had him 11th. It was 11th. All right. So, yeah, they were – so they were pretty I, – I like where they are, and they could be even higher. I'm stealing the analogy of building the basketball team, right? You want to have a rebounder. You want to have – a guy with height and leaping ability. You want to have quickness. You want to have speed uh, because what, you know, offensive football is about attacking matchups. And I think what the giants have created is a world where in a given week, Kenny Galladay can be the guy. If the matchup dictates that uh, Kadarius Tony can be the guy. If the matchup dictates Kyle Rudolph and Evan Ingram can have a big game. And of course, you know, Saquon Barkley, we've, we've done plenty of trashing of the, early running back selection as far as team building and all that stuff. But if you're going to maximize Saquon Barkley's value, you got to use him in the past game and, and, and it becomes a matchup driven game. And if, if a, if a certain team matches up well with your receivers and your tight ends, boom, you've got Saquon Barkley and his ability to run routes out of the backfield or split up, split out wide. So I love a, a lot of what they've done there. Slayton as the deep speed guy, Galladay can kind of do it all, but yes, contested catches, vertical threat, uh, Tony, I think you can ease him in as a gimmick player, slot player. He might even have outside receiver potential down the road, but you don't have to tap into that yet. I still think Sterling Shepard's a valuable player. And John Ross is going to make two – if he has a chance, he's going to make like <laughs> two or three plays where you say, wow, quickness and speed, and here's why he was the ninth overall pick. There's just so many bad plays in there too. But I would take a shot on John Ross every year just in case he could put it all together. So – I, I think the strategy behind how they've built this uh, pass catching unit is, is absolutely fantastic. How much do you guys put stock in, in, in your metrics and, and other studies you've done for actually being in the same system for a second straight year? Do you see an actual impact with that with teams? Or is that something that people talk about anecdotally that the data shows is not true? I think it's more anecdotal. I'd, I'd have to see if we've, if we've done so defensively, it's actually interesting. We've, we've shown just making a change a lot of times makes an impact. Now there's probably some noise there because it's like, well, if you're making a change, you were probably bad and you'll probably right. get better. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it's more 
yeah, I think it's just more theory than anything, you know, and it's, I'm sure every coach is going to be saying it. And Daniel Jones is a thousand times better than he was last year at this time. I'm sure that's every quote right now. Of course. But if, but if you think it's going to, you know, lead to 10 more touchdowns or lead to a, a thousand more passing yards or something, there's, there's, there's not, I don't think a whole lot of evidence that it's going to tangibly show up on the field in actual production. How much does red zone fluctuate for you guys? You know, these are a lot of the analytics questions I usually ask George when I talk to him in July, and I'm going to do that again. But I know the Giants in the red zone last year were poor, and I think the Galladay and Rudolph signings, a lot of focus was that was red zone production, right, getting, getting the ball in the end zone. Uh, how much does that fluctuate year to year? Is that a product of talent? Is that a product of scheme mostly from what your guys look at? Is it the run game? Is that where that really is important in the red zone? How do you guys view red zone production year in, year out for some of these teams? So, so quarterback performance, I think, fluctuates. Yeah, I think any, anything that is really a small sample size does tend to fluctuate. So red zone, of course, I mean, it's what, a tenth of the game or whatever as far as your snap. So that, that will absolutely tend to fluctuate. And I think what happens is you – the game of football is having answers, right? And like, like I was saying earlier, if, if Galladay and Slayton and Tony are taken away, your answer is, you know, tight ends and Barkley. And I think that's what the red zone is. And that's why having different style players is really important. You're not just going to throw 15 fades to Galladay and all of a sudden the red zone is going to be solved. But if you have that many receivers to cover, you'll, you'll have more running lanes. If, you, if, the, if, if the running game is successful, you will have more opportunities one-on-one. So it's having those answers, and I think that should uh, certainly lead to some, some improvement there. How about Barkley? I know you, we, always, we talk about running back value a lot too. Does his value increase because, like, what some running backs, all right, you turn a three-yard gain to a five-yard gain, ooh, whoop de doo But right. Barkley does have the ability to turn that four-yard gain into a 60-yard gain, right? So does yeah. that add a little punch there, and does that impact other areas of the offense as well when you have that big play running back that can be maybe more explosive than, say, even like an Ezekiel Elliott who's more of a ground-and-pound type of guy? Oh, I absolutely think so. You know, if, if, if I was, if I was going to invest in a running back, I either want a guy who's an absolute mismatch weapon in the past game or a guy who could take it to the house. And that is where Bar- we saw that in rookie, you know, Barkley's rookie season and yeah. his, his rookie season looked a lot like what he was at Penn state. He's going to have negative runs. He's not necessarily a maximize your run blocking type of guy, but if you block it up, he's going 60. Right. And uh, he has that ability. And I, you know, Todd Gurley was similar early in his career if you look at the fluctuation in Todd Gurley's production, it was like if the Rams play calling was bad and their offensive line was bad, where's Gurley? He's averaging three and a half per carry. But once they blocked it up, he wasn't the same explosive big play threat, but once they blocked it up, he's a one cut guy who could be efficient and and move the chains and be a really good running back. I, I think Saquon has a ton of that, right? Pass game, run game. And so the run blocking might not be better this year, but Barkley always felt like the guy in the right year, when they when you have that great run blocking offensive line and it all comes together, he's going to have five, six, maybe seven of those 40, 50, 60 yard runs. And he's going to have that 1800 yard season and catch a ton of passes. So, yeah, I think all of that ability is there. And I would rather have the explosive playmaker who's a pass game weapon than, say, a Zeke who's grounded, grounded out, uh, you know, ground and pound type of guy. And that's the trick. If they block it up. And now let's get to the offensive line, Steve. You guys had the offensive line ranked 32 out of 32 in your offensive line rankings. It created quite the brouhaha on our call-in shows. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but there's nuance to it. And I listened to your PFF NFL podcast. Everyone else should too. Steve Powell's old Sam Monson. Go check it out. Download it. I 
always listen when I'm either running or I'm doing my yard work. It's a great listen. And that doesn't mean they're going to be last. There is room there for improvement and a room to step forward. So, Steve, why don't you just delve into a little bit deeper of how you got to that point where they came in at 32 and what that actually means? Yeah, so when I go through the rankings, I I, I try to – it's not all completely – scientific it's not just a pure ranking like the ranking will guide us it's our north star as far as their you know historic grades and all that stuff but this isn't a spreadsheet spitting out the answers so i'll write up the offensive line and say you know andrew thomas did this and write up everybody and then put this hypothetical they feel like you know number 25 or number 28 and i think that's where i had the giants initially 28 or 29 but then i had other teams higher than that and you sort it all out and it's like all right the Giants are last in, in the rankings and it's it's just where do you feel confident that they will have success and I don't know if you have a spot along the offensive line where you feel confident now of course it's the offseason it's June and I'm going to give the positive outlook the one that the fans want to hear I'll explain how that's going to happen Andrew Thomas started out slow he got better as the, as the season wore on so um, we also liked him quite a bit coming out of college I expect him to be better um, I, you'll know better than me if Nate Solder is going to be around. Um, no, he will a, be. He, he, yeah, he, he planned. He was, he was out there at right tackle, no question. Yeah. And so if it is a true battle between Nate Solder and Matt Tare, you know, I think it, it, whoever wins that, I think that ends up becoming a solid spot. It, you know, Solder is coming off his worst season since his rookie year, though, the last time we saw him in 2019. But, and he hasn't played right tackle since 2011. Yep. But if he wins the job over Parrott, then he'll have an average tackle season, which is really valuable. And Matt Parrott, if he wins, he'll probably have an average tackle season. We, we like him as a developmental prospect coming out of UConn. But you see, it's a bunch of guys who haven't really done it yet. The interior is still a big question. I know Nick Gates did a good job for a guy who's never played center. But in relation to other centers in the NFL, he was still a bottom-tier center last year. Zach Fulton has played average football in his career. Again, it's valuable, but it's an average player amongst a bunch of other question marks. Will Hernandez has been a bit of a disappointment at left guard. And Shane Lemieux, when he played last year, was well below average in our numbers. So there's nobody on that line where you're saying, this guy's good, this guy's definitely good, and then there's a couple question marks. It's literally five genuine question marks up front, so it's really tough to put them above other offensive lines. And if you take the positive outlook for the Giants, i got to do it 31 other times for every other team, and they're just looking better right now. Yeah, and look, Dave Gettleman has made the point. He goes, look, we've drafted these guys. We have faith in them. You have to let them play to see if they develop. And I think what you guys have found, right, Steve, is that offensive line development sometimes takes a little bit longer than other positions, right? It it, it absolutely does. It is. um, And that's one of those cool things that I think is really intuitive uh, about football is, you know, you need reps on the offensive line and there's uh, physical development. You, You go from, you know, college strength to you develop your man strength when you're 24, 25 years old. I think that matters, you know, so um, that would be the encouraging sign that a Matt Parrott can take a step forward and an Andrew Thomas or even a Will Hernandez if he's back in there. Hernandez is right in that window. If he does get the opportunity to play, he's right in that window where guys take, uh, they, they take jumps forward. So um, there is a lot of youth and we've seen that happen in, in recent years. Again, it's just, if you're playing the odds, you got to go with the evidence that you have. And, you know, the evidence is a lot of questions so far. How do you guys balance run blocking with, with, with pass pro because I feel like the giants did run the ball decently, especially the second half of the year and their pass protection got better. Uh, I know you value pass protection more obviously, but when you do these rankings and you come up with your composite grades and they're split between run and pass blocking, how do you guys kind of bring that all together to, to come up with your final grades? 
Yeah, it's a good question. You know, pass pro is definitely more important. But again, if you if you're going to have a successful run game, the offensive line or your run blocking in general is a bigger uh, factor. And if teams are running the ball three and four hundred times per year, you still want to be good at it when you try it. So it's still it's close to a 50 50 balance. There's a lot of teams around the league that are really one sided. The Texans the last couple of years, the Chiefs the last couple of years have been really pass block heavy. Other teams better from a run blocking standpoint. So uh, you know, it, a part of it is balancing what teams try. You know, the Titans run the ball a ton. The Ravens run the ball. So a lot of it's how often you're doing it. But most teams are trying to get that somewhat balanced offense. So you kind of factor in both uh, as much as possible. How seriously do you guys take improvement in at the back end of the year? Like Andrew Thomas, for example, first eight games or so, it was, it was not great. It was not great. Final yeah. six, much better. Even if you look at his total pressure numbers, things like that. You know, do you then take a look at who his opponents are in those final six games? Do you assume he just improved as the season went along? How do you view that? When, it, when a guy closes a season strong after starting it poorly, do you make more of an assumption it's going to carry over to the next year? Do you find that's not always the case? How do you guys view that? Yeah, it, it's kind of like the red zone stuff. You know, anytime you tighten up the sample size, you're kind of playing sure. with fire. It, it tells a good story, right? And now with Andrew Thomas, I would buy into it more because you saw his technique change. You saw things tangibly change. So I would buy into it a little bit more, but I'll tell you where we screwed up in the past is Sam Darnold, right? I mean, there was, there were off seasons, Sam Darnold, Geno Smith, uh, you know, the, the Jets, the Jets are like, they always have the best quarterback play in week 17. Geno Smith was like week, <laughs> Mr. Week 17. He'd always finish the season strong and you have this off season optimism. And Darnold had a stretch either his rookie season or his second year where he was, you know, one of the better quarterbacks in the league over the last four weeks. And it's easy to think, oh, he must be getting better and better and it's going to carry over to next year. And it didn't matter. You know, it was just a small piece of a bigger sample size. So I think it's a dangerous thing to do sometimes unless you have tangible evidence of something that changed. And I think Andrew Thomas would be an example of a guy that maybe I'd buy into it. Um, but overall, generally, it's, it's a little overrated. What on Shane Lemieux specifically? How much, Steve, because you watch Shane Lemieux during the game. I feel like he handles stunts well. He's a smart player, but he always has two, maybe three reps per game where it's just a whiff. And the three technique just, whoop, like it's almost a no hit or no contact. How quickly do just a couple plays like that for a guard sink his overall grade with the way you guys look at this stuff? It's a lot. And this is where we might argue with, you know, offensive line folks and offensive line gurus and say, well, this guy was great except for three plays. I mean, so the perspective is though, because we grade every player on every play, we know what a guard's expectations are, right? right? So you're getting compared to your peers. So if you get whipped by the three technique two and three times a game and quickly, that doesn't happen. That happens maybe once, probably half a time, you know, on average. So it happens eight times a year for the average guard. So if it happens three times in a game, how bad is that? So it's all about perspective. It'd be like saying, well, the quarterback was great. He just threw three interceptions. Well, Three interceptions in a game we know for a quarterback is not a good number. You multiply it by 16, it's 48. We know that's not good. So that's the issue, I think, at guard is, is your peers are giving up two pressures, three pressures per game. And I'm looking at Lemieux having six and seven and four and three and other losses in there. So, yeah, that, that, was, that is a part of the issue with guards and centers. When you give up a high number of pressures, there's a lot of guys around the league who just aren't doing that. Final question on the offensive line, because we talk about this a lot too. You don't have to be a top 10 offensive line. Just don't be a bottom seven offensive line. Get out of that bottom quartile and you'll be okay. And you're right. The Giants have a lot of unproven players. They're counting on young players to improve, which can be dicey. Some guys improve, 
Some guys don't. The Giants had guys like that. They were named Eric Flowers and Bobby Hart. They kept putting them out there. They didn't get any better. They hope it's going to be different with this group. So how do you view the veterans? You mentioned Soldor already, and I agree. He's a solid tackle. Behind those young guys, you know, they have Wiggins. They have Zach Fulton. Wherever it comes down to it, and they're like, all right, these veterans got to play. Is that going to get them to the point where they're good enough to function, or is that functionality still going to be a question? You know, it's still a question because, yeah, the way you describe the line is right. You don't have to be great. You just don't want to be bad. And a guy like a Zach Fulton or a guy like a Kenny Wiggins is good when, you know, he's more valuable or feels more valuable when you have two sturdy tackles or a sturdy right. center, you know? So th there are teams around the league who are really good at three or four spots. And if you plop the Zach Fulton in there, it's like, all right, this is a top 10 offensive line and Zach Fulton's a piece there. But if Zach Fulton is your most consistent player or your best player, um, then maybe you have some issues, you know? So it, it's all about perspective, but I think, you know, in a vacuum, I, I hate using the word average because it comes across as like a knock, but you know, my baseball example is like your number three or four starter. That guy is extremely valuable. You want you used to want him to throw 200 innings. Now it's probably 150, but you used to want him to eat up innings and just not get lit up too often. And that is extremely valuable. And those guys make a ton of money. The average guard or average tackle in today's NFL is extremely valuable because um, you just don't really want to have weaknesses along your offensive line. Hey, Giant fans, limited Giant season tickets are on sale now for the 2021 season. In addition to ticket savings, membership benefits include access to exclusive events, experiences, pre-sales, and more. You can lock in your seat starting at just 100 bucks. Call 888-NYG-1925 or visit Giants.com slash tickets for more information. Let's get vaccinated. Go to COVID19.nj.gov slash vaccine to register. Hey, Giant fans, don't miss out on your chance to experience a premier hospitality experience watching Giant games or world-class concerts in 2021 as a Giant suite partner. Limited full-season locations are available or place a deposit for individual games. Call 888-NYG-1925 or visit Giants.com slash suites for more information. We're joined by Steve Palazzolo, PFF underscore Steve. Steve, let's jump to the defense very quickly here. Uh, I feel like the Giants have kind of taken the PFF defensive building strategy and really embraced it here. They're focusing on that secondary. They're looking not to have any weak points in that back end. Yeah, it, exactly what I said about the offensive line, right? Because the offensive line, if they have a weakness, the defense can attack it. Same thing with the secondary. You know, if you have a weak corner, you can be attacked. So they've done, they've done a really good job of, I would say, not completely building back to front. We know they've invested a ton in the big guys. But, you know, James Bradbury was fantastic last year. I love the Adoree Jackson signing. Um, I love a lot of signings on injury risk guys because I guess I'm always, you know, Mr. Optimism this time of year. So the best case scenario of Adoree Jackson is really, really good. He's a top 15 type of corner, and that's extremely viable. You might have two top 15 corners there with Adoree and James Bradbury. So that's a great starting point. And I think they have options in the slot with Xavier McKinney, I, I loved Aaron Robinson coming out of the draft and what, um, what he can do as a slot corner. I love the flexibility of a Logan Ryan just being in the secondary and being and more Darnay of a Darnay Holmes, too, from last year? Yeah, Darnay Holmes. I mean, to me, you throw a ton of resources at the secondary because you need depth, you need depth just to handle injuries, but you also need, to, you need five or six guys out there in a given time that are just solid in coverage, can run multiple coverages, and, and I really like the way the Giants have done that over the past couple of years. And, and, and they've missed on, they've missed on a DeAndre Baker and they've missed on corners, but the strategy is sound draft corners, find them. And you, 
you know, shuffle it all up. And as long as you get five or six good players, you, you're in a good spot. I want to talk to you about coverages. How do you guys, is there a uniform way to view decisions to play man more or zone more in the NFL? Steve, does one defense lend itself to a certain style opposed to another is one generally more effective than another because the Giants last year, I think Patrick Graham, given his history, we all thought he'd be a more of a you know man-to-man defense guy, given what New England and Miami does. To his credit, I think he saw, oh boy, we don't know who our second cornerback is. Playing a lot of man-to-man is probably not the best idea. And he went to his own heavy skiing and it worked. But I think yeah. with the Dory Jackson now, maybe he swings back. So my rambling question, I guess, ends on this. From a broad perspective, zone versus man, how do you guys view those decisions, the impact of those coverages – in general, when you view NFL defenses? I think what we found is a lot of things that the NFL knew already and the, and the numbers started to back it up. So, you know, they're not zone versus man. One's not better than the other. You know, if, if one was better, you, every team would do it. Sure. Um, I do look at man coverage. Like if you can pull it off, if you have the horses, so to speak, and right. And Patrick Graham, good job. You know, saying we don't necessarily have that. If you have the horses, it's, it's, it's tougher to complete passes. Um, so the broad view is if you, if you play man coverage, you're generally going to give up a lower completion percentage, but there's more boomer bust to it. You know, if you get beaten man coverage, it's a 15 yard gain, 20 yard gain zone coverages. You can force more turnovers. Uh, you're generally going to allow uh, shorter completions, uh, but a higher completion percentage. So th- there's that general give or take. Um, I like to theorize, like if you could have a team that could, play zone on early downs, maybe force some turnovers and then man up on third down. Cause you just need an incompletion on third down. It's essentially for a turnover. You just need an incompletion. So I think any team that has that flexibility to me, the NFL is always about flexibility and matchups. It's not like we're just going to play cover two all the time. Uh, if you have the horses to man up against good offenses, if you can game plan from a week to week, that's a very Belichick thing. We're going to game plan differently. Um, so I think that's, you know, the crux of it is adding flexibility and adding those guys that could play zone that could play man and being able to adjust throughout the season is the best case scenario. Um, but yeah, there's definitely some strengths and some weaknesses to just the general premise of man versus zone. One thing I do like Steve is teams that can play those two safeties deep. And I think we saw that with the Rams last year. And I think the bears did that for a long time. And when you can have those two safeties deep and prevent those big plays, it makes it really tough on offenses these days to slowly matriculate the way down the field. And I thought the Giants were able to do that last year too, where if you can start in that two safety shell, A, you can disguise better. But B, if you can prevent those big plays, it just, it just makes everything defensively so much easier. Yeah, it, it's huge. I mean, if you're talking NFL trends, you want, to defend the, you want to defend the run. You don't want to be bad against the run. You just don't want to sell out against the run, right? 20 years ago in training camp, week one, oh, we're going to stop the run, and that's what we got to do first, and it's the most important thing. And now it's uh, we want to stop the pass, and then, yeah, we, we hope we stop the run. We, we hope we can stop the run with as few bodies as possible. And that's where you know, guys like Dexter Lawrence and Leonard Williams and even adding a Danny Shelton, those guys are extremely, valu- extremely valuable because you don't have to bring those safeties down in the box. So that is one of those NFL trends. The Rams were a perfect example of a team that creatively – was effective against the run, but most importantly, was really good against the pass. You know, that is how you want to play defense. If you stop the run too well, teams are going to pass too much on you, and that's bad. <laughs> you know, it's bad for slowing down offenses. It, it, it just is. So, um, yeah, I, I, my ideal offense is two high safeties and being able to just switch up coverages and do what you can there 
and play the run with as few bodies as possible. And, 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 you know, that's, I think the trend in the NFL these days. Now, I don't think this was on purpose. I think it's just because there wasn't one available, but the giants have approached their pass rush without an elite edge rusher. You know, they've focused on Leonard Williams inside Dexter Lawrence. You mentioned him, you know, Lorenzo Carter, Ocean Zimenez, they've thrown numbers at the problem at the edge rusher position, but they don't have the guy. How do you guys view the importance of having that big time edge rusher? I know we've, you know, generally we've talked a lot about the coverage versus pass rush deal, but edge rusher specifically, I mean, how essential is it for an effective defense to have guys that can win against those offensive tackles one-on-one, which the giants, I think are still trying to figure out if they have that guy. Yeah, I think a lot of it depends on what you're going to run defensively. So I imagine if you had George on the show all the time, he would just say, hey, coverage is more valuable than pass rush. I think that the nuance behind that, though, is if you're running a if you're running a Seattle system or an old Lovey Smith cover two system and you rely on a four man rush, you can't have a bad defensive line. And I think um, the smart defensive coordinators are stealing a page from a Belichick or what the Ravens do if you don't have dominant one-on-one pass rushes you you have to scheme it up and it, and it becomes a five-man pressure game and it becomes creating a little bit of indecision and scheming up you know uh, free runs for linebackers and various things like that so you know I, I think it depends you know on what type of scheme you're running and I think the Giants probably have the personnel where they have to do more of that right and they might be able to play a little bit more man have those five-man rushes have those add-on blitzes um, and, and just try to speed the quarterback up enough um, but yeah, you know, if you're going to attack it, attacking it with volume, I think is okay. And you just hope that a guy like, uh, Ojalari, you know, he has that potential. You hope that he takes that step forward. You get two or three guys, um, that are at least competent rushing off the edge. Um, because if you have, if you have dominant players, it allows you to do the old four man rush stuff that like the Niners are doing a couple years ago, but yeah, clearly the giants, I think have to get creative. How do you view Leonard Williams breakout year, Steve, 11 and a half sacks. I don't think the underlying metrics, you know, define that, oh, you went from three sacks to 11 and a half. Like you look at pressures and stuff. It doesn't, you know, mix necessarily. And I've warned fans don't expect double digit sacks. Again, it's just really tough for defensive tackles to do. But how do you view the breakout season for Williams and what the expectation should be after he's gotten now his big long-term contract? Yeah, you know, I mean, you've listened to us enough, John. So, you know, you know, the answers here, you know, his pass rush grade for us has been extremely consistent. He's graded between 65 and 72 as a pass rusher. That's a good pass rush grade. And in NFL, you know, sacks just, they tend to fluctuate based off opportunities, based off what your teammates are doing. So yeah, I I wouldn't, I I honestly don't think Leonard Williams as a pass rusher has been any, was any different last year than he was the previous year. Um, He was essentially the same guy and he's, for lack of a better term, stumbled into 11 and a half sacks. And that's not a knock on Leonard Williams. He's a good, solid player. I'd expect the same. And um, I encourage all our fans, your listeners, everybody to just not define him by that one number. Define him by he rushed the passer 503 times and created 32 hurries. It's, it's a good, it's good, solid production for what he's asked to do. But this year he could have the same performance and stumble into five sacks. You know, that's uh, just the nature of it. So, Uh, Leonard Williams has been one of the most consistent players in the NFL since coming in in 2015. All right, Steve, two other big picture questions before you say goodbye. Did you guys, we've been trying to figure out what coaxed Dave Gettleman into trading back for the first time. You know, the Daniel Jeremiah theory has been floated, uh, you know, you know, with the whole NASCAR left turn thing, Uh, maybe, maybe you guys managed to get him to Cincinnati and like locked him in the room and talked to him a little bit. You've always, you guys have always liked his drafts and how he's evaluated plays. You've always been high on that to be fair. 
what did you think about his his draft this year and acquiring all those extra picks and a couple of trade downs? I, I, it was awesome. I mean, it was, to, <laughs> to see some of those moves, you know, I think I think part of it is you know he the the computer folks that he has that he has hired. Uh, I, I think there's there's probably at least some some influence and conversation there. Um, I, I think the trade down in, in round one was fantastic. You know, that was, it, it was smart. Um, I also think there's this element of you don't, you're, they knew they weren't drafting a quarterback. So you you have a little bit more flexibility there. Right. And, and, and so a lot of it is, you know, even if he's an old school scout, so to speak, you're still kind of playing your board. If you're sitting there at 10 and it's like, well, I don't have a big difference between this guy and that guy. I could take that chance and, and, and trade down. It's easier to do that when you don't need a quarterback. So um, I, I think that, you know, and, and if you're a Dave Gettleman and overall you feel like you're a good scout, you should feel good about, I want to trade down more. I want to take more shots at it. I'm good at this thing, you know? So uh, I don't have a specific theory with it other than it, it felt like they had, he knows that they needed depth, right? This has been a multi-year rebuild. You know, you need more shots at it. And I think that just kind of came to a head this season. All right, final question. Giants in the context of the NFC East, Steve. We know last year was just a disaster in the division. Uh, Washington won it by default. Uh, they won enough games. I'm not taking anything away from them, but when you don't finish 500, you win a division. It is what it is, right? How do you view this division in, in 2021, where these teams are, where they're heading? Is it as open as, as a field as it looks from the outside? Your thoughts on the NFC East in 2021? Well, I think it's going to be better. You know, I, I think Washington has a stabilizing factor in, in Ron Rivera. I think you saw that they did not have a great roster going into last year. And all of a sudden it's like, wow, Ron Rivera is, you know, pretty good. He's elevated his teams throughout his career. So I think they will be, you know, just a tough team year in, year out, no matter what happens with their roster. Dallas has to be better with Dak and a lot of their offensive line back. So Dallas should be better. It's just a matter of their defense. Can Dan Quinn just get their defense back to just middle of the pack? They were, they were really bad last year. Giants took a step forward, obviously, everything that we've talked about, feel good about uh, everything defensive, a lot of their defense, a lot of their playmakers. So I think the Giants are right there in the mix. And then the Eagles just feel – the Eagles could go anyway. They just – I know they're in a rebuild, right? I mean, I know they're, they're starting over. They feel like they're starting from scratch. But if Jalen Hurts is legit, then all of a sudden they're dangerous. I, I don't know that that's going to happen. But I think, you know, Jalen – when you have a – you know. A, quarterback that's going to run the ball as much as he does it does kind of just raise the floor of the team so they feel like they're in the rebuild but it doesn't mean they're going to win three games they could be a seven or eight win team and still just be tough so I think it's it's a much better division around you know all around if everybody stays healthy Uh, I I do think a lot of those teams did get better or at least uh, can maintain status quo so I think the division's much better than it was a year ago for sure Steve, tell the folks where they can find you, all the stuff you guys do at PFF, your subscriptions, anything else you want to get out there for us. Yeah, so first off, PFF.com, all of our elite and edge subscriptions, that's exactly what you need. This offseason, fantasy betting, just overall NFL analysis, PFF Elite's the best one there. And then the PFF NFL podcast, my co-host Sam and I, we talk about all this stuff, always you know, ranking the Giants 32nd, but giving you the positive slant on their offensive line. It's all on the PFF NFL podcast. Make sure you guys go check it out, Steve. We love the work you guys do. The data is tremendous. It gives great perspective. Thanks so much for the time, my friend. You got it. Thank you, John. Steve Palazzolo from Pro Football Focus. We thank you for joining us on the John Settle Podcast. We'll see you next time, everybody. And by the way, we record this last week. So if there's a list out we didn't talk about, that's why. Don't yell at me on Twitter. For Steve, I'm Schmelk. We'll see you next time, everybody.